Well, friends, I want to invite you to take your Bibles now and turn to the book of Micah in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. We'll have the joy of walking through together this morning. If you don't own a Bible, I've already mentioned, we provided some hopefully within arm's reach for you. And you'll find what we're going to look at today on page 730 in those Bibles that are provided on the pews. Micah chapter 5 verses 1 to 5 is going to be the main focus for us today. I want to begin by just reading those five verses with you. And I want to ask you if you're able to please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. This is the word of the Lord to us. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. This week I was listening to a podcast where a couple of authors were talking about the tension that I bet you've experienced, I certainly have, of living in a time when you can know an almost limitless about suffering all over the world more than would have ever been imaginable even 50 years ago, much less 500, while you yourself are still every bit as limited as a human as humans 500 years ago would have been. I mean, it's a mixed bag. There's a tension here. I mean, on the one hand, the reach of social media and online videos, online news, it, they've done a lot of good. I mean, surely the, the viral video of Ahmad Arbery's killing helped make sure that he got the justice that he deserved. That's good. And, and knowing about the devastation that followed the tornadoes in Kentucky... Well, that helps me to, to pray for them right now when it's needed. A couple hundred years ago, if news ever made it down this far from what had happened up there, it probably would have been weeks later, not in time to actually pray when the needs are ongoing. Those are good things. But on the other hand, I mean, the, the, the scale of injustice and suffering in the world is just simply overwhelming. Now, if you took the time to just pull up an online newspaper this morning, you know what I'm talking about. You would have seen headlines there about killing of innocent civilians through mistaken drone strikes. You would have seen headlines about a surge of Omicron and the COVID-19 pandemic that's all over the world now and only picking up steam. You would have seen, well, you would have seen what you'll find there every single morning if you take the time to look. It's not pretty out there. And as a limited human who's got only so much time in the day and only so, so much reach and strength, you're right to wonder what in the world 
can I do about the plight of women in Afghanistan when I'm already overwhelmed by the literacy rates in my own neighborhood? What can I do about the literacy rates in my own neighborhood when I'm already overwhelmed by just the basic challenge of, let's just call it subsistence level parenting of my own children? Who am I? What can I do with a world like this one? I can see three basic options. One way you could live with it is to just kind of steal your heart to it. So just shrug your shoulders and say, well, that's life. Always has been like this. Always will be like this. I can't go there. Another option would be just to distract your mind. You know, just to make a choice that it'd be healthier not to pay attention. Just binge through another sitcom or watch somebody else play video games online. Or, option three, you could decide you are going to pay attention. You could decide to, as best you can, actually empathize as if the people involved really do matter. And then focus all your hope, not on the strength of your own arms, but on the promise of a king to come who will bring peace on earth, who isn't limited in the ways that you are. And Micah is in the Bible to encourage all of us to take option three. we are right now in, the, in the, this month in our church's sermons, we are, we are focusing on a few of the places where Matthew in his gospel draws from the Old Testament and the expectations the prophets set for Israel and their future to set the, 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 the significance of Jesus and his birth. Why is it such good news that he's here, that he's come? Last week, Jonathan took the first of Matthew's cited prophecies. That was from Isaiah and talked to us about the promise that that we can trust a God who is with us, Emmanuel. Today, we'll take the second prophecy that Matthew cites. Matthew cites a passage from Micah, the one that I've just read, the promise that from Bethlehem would come a ruler from ancient days, one who would be strong and who would be the peace of his people. I wonder how many of you guys have ever heard a sermon preached from the prophet Micah? Would you mind just raise your hand if you've ever heard a a sermon from Micah? I'm going to put it at about 5% of the room. Oh, you're in for a treat today, guys. I cannot wait to be your tour guide into this amazing little book. Micah is one of the minor prophets. That's what it's called, but not because there's... There's nothing important here. Uh, there's a reason this is one of the three prophets Matthew, Matthew used to set up his story. And it's not called a minor prophet because it's in a minor key either. Even though, yeah, I mean, the prophets, Micah included, spend a lot of time talking about sin and warning of judgment. There are bursts of unbelievable hope in this book that we're going to consider together today. No, the reason that, that, that this book is called a minor prophet is that it's short, relatively Last week, we looked at a passage from Isaiah. Isaiah's got 66 chapters, and they're all pretty long. Micah has seven chapters. It's minor because it's, you know, you can read it all in one sitting. And in fact, I want to strongly encourage you to do that, even this afternoon. Because though I want to give you a taste of the whole book today, uh, it is just going to be a taste. And you will not be sorry if you spend a little bit of your Lord's Day this afternoon reading the whole thing in one sitting from beginning to end. For this morning, what I want to do is simply this. 
I want to focus not just on the central section that Matthew quotes, though that'll be our main focus, but give you a taste of the main themes that this book is here to, to show us. A taste of the whole through three basic questions that this book raises and answers. Question number one. Question one, number one. Why is there so much injustice in the world? Why is there so much injustice in the world? The answer that Micah gives us is an answer that I think you can recognize from your own experience. And that's that there's so much injustice in the world, at least in part, because leaders serve themselves at the expense of those they lead. Because all too often, those who have power feed on those who don't have power. Friends, to, to recognize just how beautiful Matthew 5 is, the promise of, of a ruler out of Bethlehem who comes to stand and shepherd his people and be their peace, to understand that beauty, to see it for what it is, we need to take a step back a couple chapters earlier in Micah and pay attention to the context in Israel in which that leader was so desperately needed. I warned you uh, that, that this is a book that includes a lot of talk of sin and judgment. I'll say now, as you'll see in chapter 3 of Micah, some of, the, some of the language used in this book for sin and the reason that justice or judgment is coming is very brutally specific. Will you turn with me over to, Math, or to, to Micah chapter 3, just a couple pages over from what I've already read? I want to show you what I'm talking about. Here at the beginning of Micah chapter 3, Micah speaking to the rulers of Israel. He calls them to listen. Hear you heads of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel. That's Micah 3, 1. Listen to what he tells them. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil. It gets worse. You who tear the skin from off of my people and their flesh from off their bones. Who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them. And break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot. Like flesh in a cauldron. That's vivid, isn't it? These are the rulers who are responsible to uphold God's justice. That's their one job, to, to foster, to create, and to protect a society where everybody gets to thrive and everybody gets to flourish. That's what authority is for. That's why God instituted authority. But these custodians of justice have chosen injustice instead. These ones who were supposed to lead people toward good and away from evil, they hate good. They love evil. Micah is, maybe with the best possible imagery for what was going on in Israel's time, Micah pictures these rulers as a bunch of cannibals who instead of cultivating their people so that they flourish, so that fruit comes out of their lives, they consume their people for their own good. 
And it isn't just the civil rulers who've been guilty of this. In verse 5 of chapter 3, Micah turns on religious leaders too. These prophets who claim to speak for God, who claim to connect the people to God and to God's ways. Well, they're tailoring their messages based on what they get in return. When they have something to eat, they speak peace, verse 5 says. But declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. You see the point? They're not in it for the spiritual health of their people. They're in it to fill their own bellies and their own wallets. The people are just a means to an end, even for the prophets. They're just a commodity to be managed and exploited. All of them are corrupt, civil and religious alike. And it's summed up pretty well in verse 9 of chapter 3. There he describes them as those who detest justice and make crooked all that's straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. If you want justice from them, you pay up. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. All of them, they're just serving themselves. There's nothing higher to them and their list of priorities than their own interests. Why is there so much injustice in the world? Well, there's so much injustice in Israel during Micah's time because the leaders of the people served themselves at the expense of those they lead. Those who had power fattened themselves on those without power. And friends, you will find that same problem in every country on the globe throughout all of history. In our fallen world, it's tough not to just assume that wherever you find power, you'll find people abusing it, using it just to serve themselves instead of the people they lead. If you're paying attention, you'll see it everywhere. And it's a major reason there's so much injustice all around the world. That reality, friends, that ought to make us sick. Friend, if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, I wonder, do you have a good reason to object to leadership like this? I'm not, I'm not asking whether you object to it. I, I am assuming when you see the powerful abusing the weak, you hate it. That there is a gut reaction you have against it, whether you see it on the middle school playground or see it in the geopolitics of our modern world. I, I'm, what I'm really asking is, do you have a good philosophical reason to object to this kind of behavior? Can you explain what makes it wrong? Uh, some years back, I was traveling in another country in South Asia, an absolutely amazing and beautiful country full of amazing and beautiful people who were suffering under notoriously corrupt government, corrupt from top to bottom. Uh, there's this one point where I was riding around with somebody who'd lived there for years working for an NGO, for a, for a kind of a nonprofit that did work in development and relief. Uh, this guy was talking about the challenge of, of living and working in a place where bribery is just a built-in expectation for life. It's just how the world works. If you want to get something done, you've just got to play this game. He said, uh, he said the leaders behaved the way they did because that's how their gods behaved. They were, they, were, they, were, they were looking to models in their holy books full of deities playing for advantage in a dog-eat-dog world. And, and, and with that model in front of them, actually, I mean, 
the more you're able to squeeze for yourself, the more respect you would earn. If you could get away with it, it was almost celebrated that you could get a, a bribe of that size when your buddy only got a bribe of, of, of this size. It was a culture without a clear reason to object to leaders who exploited people under them. I think secularism suffers from the same problem, friends. Maybe, maybe you're more tempted to see the world as a place without a supreme ruler, a supreme power. Without a God who made it all and rules over it even now. I mean, in a world like that, if, if, if the world has gotten to this point where we are right now, not by any kind of design, but by, but by a process of, of random chance, if, if we humans got our abilities, our unique skills and powers through weeding out weaker species one by one by one, well, it, it seems like, I mean, it seems to me like the strong feeding on the weak is just the way of the world. Not, a, not really a problem, but the system working like it's supposed to. It's a not, a, not a bug, but a feature. Why shouldn't the strong behave that way? And who's to say they shouldn't behave that way? I wonder, do you have a solid foundation underneath what your gut tells you is true? That this kind of exploitation is just awful. It has to be stopped. Friend, I believe one of the best reasons to believe in Christianity, to believe that it's all really true, is that Christianity explains why injustice bothers us so much when we see it, why it ought to. Because when the strong exploit the weak, they violate a standard that God put into his world when he created us and everything else around us. He defines what is right. He defines what is wrong. Justice is his ultimately. That's why it bothers us when we see the way of the world. But I wonder, my, my Christian friend, I wonder if when you do open your eyes and you do see the scale of injustice all around us. Are you bothered by it as God is? One reason we have prophets like this one is that they show us how God feels about injustice in all its variety. The prophets like Micah are full of examples of a rot at Israel's core in this terrible time in their history. But these prophets are preserved thousands of years later, not just to give us a window into that time and place, but to give us a window into the heart of God. They're here so we can see what God sees when he looks at injustice. When we see how God saw injustice then, the prophets are showing us how God sees injustice everywhere. It's not like he hated it when, it when it popped up among his own people, but he's just cool with it. Anywhere else it might happen to show up. No, his character is unchanging. He always hates it when the strong abuse the weak. And our growth in godliness as Christians should make us more and more intolerant of injustice when we see it. Because we're becoming more and more like him. Our internal radar is being calibrated by his and over time, we'll react more and more as he does. Do you? Let me ask you one more question. Friends, do you regularly pray for those who are in positions of authority that God will protect them from abuses like these ones? 
you should. We should. Please do. Authority is a good gift. The Bible is clear about that. It's a gift from God for our good. That's true even when we're talking about civil governments that aren't holy by any measure. But, but Micah backs up what we can know from experience anytime and anywhere. Power notoriously corrupts. I guess another way to put it is that it, it, when you're in power, sometimes what you, can, what you can take off are the shackles that otherwise might have kept your selfishness in check. You know, the limits of what you could do and get away with. That's not good. And that's why the Bible tells us to pray, pray, pray for those who are in authority. The stakes are high. The people involved, they're precious. And the danger is real. We need God's help. Whether we're talking about praying for our civil government here in Nashville or our state leaders or our national leaders or world leaders in other countries, we're talking about the the leaders in our own church where God has put us right here on this corner. Please, friends, pray that the Lord will protect us from abuses that have often come along with power because he hates those abuses. Why is there so much injustice in the world? Well, one major reason is leaders often serve themselves at the expense of those they lead. And that leads us to a second question. Raised by Micah and answered in the passage I already read today. What hope is there for justice? We've asked, why is there so much injustice in the world? Now let's consider, friends, why, what hope is there for justice? This question brings us right to the heart of the section from Micah that I read right at the beginning of the sermon. It's the one that Matthew quotes to explain Jesus' birth. It's this hopeful section that follows Micah's harsh words against Israel's leaders. The section I read from from chapter 3 that we've just walked through together, it sets up what comes in chapter 5. And the answer that I want to work on here for a little bit is that there is hope for justice for only one reason. In God's kindness and in God's mercy, injustice won't have the last word because a new ruler is coming. A new ruler is coming. One way to think about the, the way the Old Testament talks about Israel's leaders is to think about them as kind of sketching out a negative space picture. Do you know what I'm talking about? You sometimes see this in branding. Maybe the, this time of year, you've got FedEx trucks all over. Have you ever noticed that the, that the E and the X in FedEx's logo fit together to create a little arrow pointing in a certain direction? Google it later. It's a negative space portrait. Or the, the, N, the NBC turkey. You know, these little pads of color, but, but really the pads of color are just helping you to see that in between that color are these white lines, this negative space that, that, that's the, or it's a peacock. Yeah, thank you, Melanie. I saw you uh, mouthing, that's not a turkey, it's a peacock. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, or even our own worship guide right here on the front of it. You'll see this little window, it's a pad of color, but in, what, what's missing marks off the shape of these beautiful windows that we have here in our building. Think about what the Old Testament says about Israel's leaders from Micah chapter three to the books of the kings as drawing out a kind of negative space portrait. What's missing is meant to draw our attention into what's coming, into what is desperately needed. I want you to think about Micah chapter three, the way that the rulers in Israel at this time were feeding on their people as marking off a kind of empty spot 
that Micah chapter 5 is meant to color in for us. Come with me to Micah 5. In Micah 5 verse 2, the prophet looks ahead and speaks to Bethlehem. From you, O Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Bethlehem, because this was David's hometown. From of old, because a long time ago, God promised that someone would come from David's line who would sit on a throne and rule forever. And look at what this ruler will be, verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock. He will guide them. He will feed them. He will protect them. He will do the work of a shepherd for them. And he will do it, verse 4, in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. He will shepherd them on God's agenda, not his own. He will seek God's glory, not his own wallet. And because of this ruler, ruling in the strength of God, well, they will dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. This is not some tribal deity. This is not some tribal lord. This is a kingdom that's going everywhere. It's going global. This peace will spread over all the earth. And he, this ruler, this king, he shall be their peace. Verse 5. Can you see, friends, how these verses echo that awful picture that we looked at in chapter 3? There's so much injustice in the world because so often those who have power prey on those who don't have it. There is hope for justice in this world only through a new kind of ruler, a new kind of leader, one we've never seen before. Not a butcher who lives to feed off of others, but a shepherd like David who stands strong to protect and to provide for his flock. That's the promise Matthew used to explain why Jesus' birth was such wonderfully good news. And I believe that's the promise that Jesus himself had in his mind when he described the work he had come to do in John chapter 10. Can I ask you to turn with me there over to the New Testament to John's gospel chapter 10? This is a section where Jesus is unfolding for those who are listening to him what he's come for and why they need it so badly. And in this section of John chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. Pick up with me in verse 10. He's talking about what, what's going on in the world, what's normal out there. The thief, he comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Does that sound familiar? Some things never change. I came, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. Their leaders ate them up for breakfast. But Jesus, verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Same contrast in verse 12. He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd... Those Micah chapter 3 type rulers, 
Well, the one who doesn't own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them up and scatters them. That guy's in it for himself. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But verse 14, Jesus says, I, well, I'm not like that. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. It's personal for him. There's an attentive love between him and his flock. And friends, there is hope for us. It's like, it's like Jesus, is, he, he sees this negative space portrait. He just whips out his colored pencil. He's like, watch this. Let me, draw, let me fill this in for you. And he scribbles it in line by line by line. I am the good shepherd. I will not run. I will not feed off of you. I will feed you. I will even lay down my life for you because I love you. There's only hope for justice because a new ruler has come and is coming again. This is one who will not use his power to feed on his people, but to protect and to provide for them. I, I love the way Isaac Watts puts this in the, in the hymn we'll sing later. He rules the world with truth and grace. You never saw a leader like this one. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He'll be great to the ends of the earth. And there is no other hope for justice in this broken and sin-sick world. None but Jesus. There's so much I could say here about why we need this message so badly right here, right now. I just want to give you one example. I alluded to this a little bit earlier when I was setting up the whole sermon. If we're paying attention, if we're opening our minds and our hearts to the scale of injustice around us in the world. If we're doing that right, we will be overwhelmed by it. We just will be. To see injustice out there and say, no, that is not acceptable. That's godly. That's right. But to see injustice in the world for what it is, to see the scale of it and say, I got this. I'm on it. Watch this. Well, that's just delusional. That's actually a form of hubris that'll leave you empty and broken when you finally realize it. We need something more. If we see injustice like God sees it, if we open up our eyes and our hearts and we, we know that also we're, we're not God. We can't actually fix everything. We can't possibly be the solution we're longing for. How do we sleep at night and wake up to face another morning unless there's hope in a king who's just not limited the way we are? How do we put our hands to what we can do to love our neighbor? If we're preoccupied by, by the scale of what we can't do, only if we've got a clear view of him. Let me just give you, let me just press this same thing one, one step further. This time of year, I am regularly on the receiving end of a lot of year-end summaries and appeals from, from different nonprofits that I love and support and believe in. Um, this, is, this is a time of year where, where we're looking back, we're summing up what happened, what are we looking ahead to, what is the need? The, the, the kind of reports tend to focus on the great need that's in the world to explain how their work helps address that need and then to tell you what your role can be in getting in on it. Recently, I saw one of these uh, really well done uh, by an organization doing some amazing work to 
combat sex trafficking and slavery in general around the world. The numbers that this organization provides are just unbelievably staggering. By their estimate, 40 million people are enslaved around the world right now. 40 million. I cannot get my mind around that number. That's 40 million people who are somebody's son or daughter. People with hopes and fears as real as mine or yours. 40 million people, humans. This organization is doing some amazing work to try to rescue those who are already enslaved and then to try to bring to justice those who are guilty of enslaving them, those who are perpetuating slavery as a system around the world. They're doing their best to attack this thing at every single level. And from what I can tell from the report I saw, they are doing amazing work. Their model is working. It's effective. I don't know anybody who's doing more than they are. But, but the fact that they're doing so much so well only makes the other number that I saw stand out even more. Last year, they were able to rescue approximately 8,600 people. That's amazing. 8,600 individuals with dignity, bearing the marks of God's own beauty and genius, people worthy of the freedom that he made them to enjoy. If all you've got is that number, that 8,600, you're rejoicing. Praise the Lord. It's incredible that they were able to do that. But then if you stop and you think about the other number they gave you, 40 million people living in slavery today. If 8,600 were rescued, that leaves approximately 39,991,400 still in bondage. I could give my whole life to that work. Every bit of my time and every pity, penny that I own. And I will not see this problem resolved in my lifetime. Meanwhile, what about persecuted Christians in North Korea? What about refugees from Syria? What about people made in God's image right now lacking basic food and water in Africa? Friends, we we should do good where he gives us the opportunity to. But if we're using our Christmas celebrations to look honestly and openly at the scale of the brokenness in this world, then we've also got to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we've got to hope in nothing other than Jesus the King, Jesus the Good Shepherd, who one day will come back, who one day will make it so that it is on earth as it is in heaven. We can trust him with that and no one else. What hope is there for justice in a world as broken as ours? There's only one, only one hope. And it's not me and it's not you. It is the ruler born in Bethlehem whose coming forth is of old. Friends, there's one more question that we have to ask as we close. If we want to fully understand the good news that Micah has to offer, there's another theme in this book 
that helps us to see the beauty of Jesus. I want to frame it as just one more question. We've asked what hope is there for justice? We also ought to ask what hope is there for the unjust? If God has promised to rid the world of injustice, and if that's the expectation that's built into the coming of Jesus, what hope is there for people who have not always been just? If we're thinking clearly, in other words, friends, if we're thinking clearly, if we're being honest, what we're asking is what hope is there for anyone if that's the king who's coming? See, it can be tempting for us to think about the world as full of good guys and bad guys. You know, if you like the old westerns from the old times, it'd be the guys riding around on horses in white hats and the guys riding around on horses in black hats. Of course, nobody wants to be riding around on a horse in one of those black hats. Sometimes talk of injustice in the world stirs up a lot of what you might think of as white hat enthusiasm. You know, an eagerness to see the bad guys get what's coming to them. And if you hear the prophets in excerpts, you could respond kind of like that. You could think, yeah. I'm so glad I'm wearing the white hat. In fact, one of the most famous verses in the Bible falls in Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. And it could even tempt us to think about the world like that and of our own place in it. We read from this earlier in our service. Here's the verse. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? How beautiful is that? There's a reason that verse is famous. What an incredible summary of a good life, a life that brings glory and honor to God. But there's a danger for us here too in reading this verse. Because it seems to me, I don't, I don't know if your impression is, it will fit this or not, but it, it seems to me that most often when I've seen this verse pulled out and used, it's been as a kind of jab against other people who don't get it. We, we, we might put this verse on like a sort of biblical white hat. Put it on a hashtag or a t-shirt that says essentially what the Pharisee said to the tax collector. Thank you, God, that I am not like other men. That's not what this verse means. This verse came as a warning. Not just to Israel's leaders with all their big and obvious abuses of power, but to Israel's people who were just as guilty before God's perfect standard. Will you turn with me from Micah 5, one page over to Micah 6? At the beginning of this chapter, before this famous verse that I've just read, Micah turns from focusing on the leaders who were so obviously guilty of abuse to the people who had all too often followed in their footsteps. He calls the people out for their sin in verses 3 to 5. And then in verse 6, he asks questions about how we can deal with this sin. What can we do about it? What does the Lord require? With what shall I come before the Lord, verse 6, and bow myself before God on high? How about burnt offerings? Would that do it? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? How about that? Or 10,000 rivers of oil, would that get it done? How about, what if I was to give up my own firstborn? Would that 
cleanse my soul? And verse 8 is the answer. No, none of that would be enough. Here's what it would take. He's already told you, oh man, what is good. Here's what the Lord requires. Do justice. In other words, on the outside, treat people like they deserve to be treated. Love kindness. On the inside, while you're treating people the right way on the outside, love the fact that you're treating them that way. Love what's good. Love what's right. Do it because you want to, not because you have to. And walk humbly with God. In other words, acknowledge him as Lord. Acknowledge him as the reason for doing what's right. Not your own self-advancement, not your own praise. Do you get the point yet, friends? What can I bring to God to account for my sin against him and others? Well, be perfect on the outside. Be perfect on the inside. And do it all for God and not for yourself. That's what the Lord requires. That's the standard. How do you measure up? I don't. I find no hope for myself in Micah 6.8. The same me first posture behind all the injustice that we hate, friends, it is alive and well in every one of our hearts. And God sees it. He sees all of it and he hates it. And the same holiness that will one day make right everything that's been done wrong, that same holiness that's behind these promises of a new world of perfect peace, unblemished by injustice, that same holiness cannot tolerate sin at all. In fact, friends, the, the, the kingdom of the good shepherd that we look to and long for, it's only so safe and so secure because the good shepherd has gotten rid of all the sin that brings injustice into the world. So what hope for those of us with sin here in our hearts? There can be no hope for peace on earth, not for us, not for anyone apart from peace with God. And that's precisely what Micah promises us. Earlier, we read the final words of this amazing little book. We read them together to assure ourselves of the gospel. These, they, they come almost out of nowhere. I mean, up, up till then, the book has, has been taking a bleak turn. It's hitting hard on sin and promising clearly of judgment to come. And then almost out of nowhere, like a light shining in the darkness, in this final word of hope in the book, on the end of a cycle of judgment and warning, Micah breaks out into what you basically amounts to a praise chorus. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He doesn't retain his anger forever. He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You'll show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. That is beautiful. And the prophets don't always explain how God will be able to pull that off. They don't always resolve the tension between a judgment that's coming and it's necessary and a promise of mercy and peace that just breaks in from the darkness, a, a shaft of light. It's just a promise that God will show mercy. And it's a picture that, that the New Testament fills in for us. When Jesus took out that pencil in John 10, 
started to color in that negative space portrait that the Old Testament had given us of him. He said that he'd be a good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. But all friends, he didn't mean he would be willing to if he had to. He said in verse 10, no one takes it from me. I lay it down to my own accord, he says. He came to die on purpose. And he says he did it on a charge that he received from his father. He came in order to die as a shepherd who was also a sacrificial lamb to take away the sins of the world. Do you remember Micah's questions? What will I come with, a burnt offering? That won't be enough. How about, how about a thousand rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? Nope, that won't do it. Still not enough? What about my firstborn child? No, not even that. Not even that could outweigh the seriousness of sin. But God's own son? The firstborn over all creation? That would do it. Because this one did do justice. He did love kindness. It oozed out of him. He did walk humbly with his God, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And when he died, he died as a pure and spotless lamb. This king comes crowned not with gold, but with thorns. Friends, this kingdom of peace that Jesus came to bring is only good news for any of us if God has made a way for sinful people like me and you to enter into it. And he has. He has. Through his own flesh and blood, broken and shed for all who trust in him. Just think of it, friends. Micah said of those rulers in Israel, they tear the skin from off of my people and their flesh from off their bones. They eat the flesh of my people and chop them up like meat in a pot. Jesus says in John 6, whoever feeds on my flesh, whoever drinks my blood, he has eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. Whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgressions. Friends, there is no other God. There is no one like him. All glory be to Christ because he's worthy. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask you to help us to see in the coming of Jesus the beauty and the hope we can't find anywhere else. And help us to hold on in hope in the midst of so much pain and justice, sorrow and sin all around us. For the day when he returns and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Hold us for that day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.